Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, let me add my welcome to Joe's. We're going to uh, kick right off. Uh, hopefully, you've got uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 open uh, and is going to read uh, to us in a few moments when I've introduced it, and we're going to go through that whole chapter uh, in three stages. But let me uh, begin uh, like this. Anyone who has ever climbed a mountain, especially with small children, uh, knows what it's like. It was a fine, clear day in these holidays, clouds scudding in a pale blue sky, daffodils poking their heads tentatively through the soil as we made our way along the valley bottom. We joined the path that rose into the lower flanks of the mountain, enjoying the sound of the bubbling gill as we strode along briskly, munching our grass made gingerbread. After a while, as the path became rockier and steeper, with the gingerbread gone and water supplies already diminishing, the distance and the effort began to take their toll. The youngest child, who'd been scampering ahead happily, decided that she would, after all, like a lift in the backpack. Another asked, how far till the top? Another, how long till lunch? Another, is it time for some Kendall Mink Kate yet? But now was not the time to stop. We had to keep going. We toiled on further, energy levels falling, thinking about the sandwiches and the flask in the rucksack and the view we would get from the summit. Then at last, the path leveled off. A cairn came into sight and we arrived at the peak that we had first seen when setting off from the bottom. Everyone threw down their backpacks with great relief and we stopped to enjoy the view. Look how far we've come, one of us said. Look, you can see the car right down there in the valley bottom, miles and miles away. Look over there, you can see Windermere and Coniston, even Morecambe Bay in the sunshine beyond. Look, there's the power station, Hesham, Clougher Pike, the Ashton Memorial. What a fantastic view. It was worth the effort, wasn't it? Yes, it is a good view, but now it must be lunchtime. But of course, we had to break it to them. This was not the summit. It was a good place to pause briefly, catch our breath, savour the view and marvel at how far we'd come. But we weren't there yet. There was more ground to cover, so much more height to be gained. And when we reached the summit, then there would be a view worth seeing. And that, we said firmly, was where we would have our sandwiches. I begin there because that common experience of hill walking, of reaching one summit only to find that there is another higher one beyond, is a very helpful way of thinking about our experience of reading the Bible as Christians. And it's a particularly good way of understanding the point that we have reached in our journey through the book of 2 Samuel this morning. I hope you've got the passage open to Samuel 5. And if you glance down with me at verses 9 and 10 and 12, you'll see what a peak we have reached as this long story of David's kingship to Israel rises and, and reaches this climax. Have a look at verses 9 and 10 and 12. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. 
many Bible readers over the centuries have rightly recognized those verses as marking a significant peak, a moment of climax in the unfolding story that the Bible tells. It's a story that we've been following for several years in 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, Although the trail of breadcrumbs that has led to this point actually goes back much further. In fact, the whole story of the Bible since the very beginning has anticipated this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So I want to think about the Bible a little bit this morning. If you think about it, it is a long and complex book. But it's very helpful to remember that it's telling a simple story from beginning to end. It is the story of the kingdom of God. That is God's purpose. That's the mountain peak you glimpse right at the beginning, and that's the peak you arrive at right in the end. As we saw in our summer series in Genesis and Revelation, God's good plan. That kingdom purpose of God is first glimpsed in the Garden of Eden. God's people living in God's place, living under his rule and blessing. It's then lost, tragically, and broken in the rebellion by Adam and Eve, who reject God's rule and so lose his blessing. It is then restated by means of a promise of God to Abraham. God says he'll take Abraham's descendants into the promised land. He will drive out the residents of the land and make the land their own. And he'll gather his people into his place under his rule, enjoying his blessing and peace. And so that is the story the Bible tells. Up until this point, that kingdom promise has been just that. It's been a promise It's been an idea. It's been a shadowy shape in the distance, a hope, a goal, an expectation, something passed on, stated verbally or implicitly from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses and to David. But now at last, we get to see it. It's here, right here in 2 Samuel 5, that the promises and purposes of God that began right back in creation began to take, again, a physical shape in buildings, in a city, in rock and stone and flesh and blood, as God's rule is now exercised in a physical place, in a moment in time, with a flesh and blood king. Here, for the first time since Eden, we see God's kingdom on earth, the promise manifested physically. It's a very important part of the Bible. And so we reach something of a peak at this point in 2 Samuel. It's been a long and arduous journey, but now at last God's long-awaited king is here. He gathers his people, he takes up his throne, he builds his city, and he defeats his enemies. Now at last, God's promises are beginning to look like a kingdom. And so 2 Samuel 5, and I hope you enjoy this experience this morning, is a moment really just to take a breather, to crack open the Kendall mint cake, and I wish I could have got some to everybody watching, to enjoy the view and to see how far we've come. And we're going to see it is a great view. But this is not the summit. 2 Samuel 5 is merely a staging post to what is to come after. And so the things we're going to see here are giving shape and form to the bigger and better reality, the kingdom of God that will come in Jesus Christ. Hopefully, this is going to spur us on to look forward to that ultimate goal. 
So the purpose of this passage is to make us look back and to make us look ahead to the coming of Christ. And as we do that, what we're going to see is an extraordinary vision of the future. We're going to see what kind of hope that Christians have. It's established here, but it far outweighs it. And I want to leave us this morning with a clearer view of that hope that'll challenge us in two ways. Firstly, it'll encourage us not to settle into this world as if we have arrived at the peak. And secondly, it'll help us not to despair that we'll never get there. So we're going to look at the chapter in three sections. And for each one, we're going to look back, see how far we've come, look ahead, see what is to come. And Andy's going to bring us our first section from shepherd boy to shepherd king in verses one to five. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Thanks, Andy. From shepherd boy to shepherd king. The long story of David's rise to kingship began in 1 Samuel 16, when he was anointed in his hometown of Bethlehem by the prophet Samuel. Now at last, with every contender to the throne no more, he has come into his kingdom. And there's a moment of recognition as all the tribes of Israel verse 1, represented, verse 3, by all the elders of Israel, come and accept David as their king. I think for the reader at this point, there is a sense of relief after all the stress of Saul's pursuit and persecution of David through the second half of 1 Samuel, and then the terrible civil war that we've seen over the last few weeks in chapter 2, 3, and 4 of 2 Samuel. And there should also be, I think, a sense of Relief, because at last, the people of Israel have come to their senses. And we might wonder what took them so long. Well, what took them so long? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Because we, as the reader, have known from 1 Samuel 16 that David is God's anointed king. What took them so long to recognize him? Well, the same reason that so many people don't recognize Jesus Christ because they do not believe the basic premise of the Bible expressed in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, that the kingdom of God is something that God himself is going to bring about. They've been looking for the wrong kind of king. They've been looking for someone impressive, someone strong. They were putting their hope in power and politics and princes rather than in God. But now at last, with the blood and chaos of the last few chapters, a reminder of their folly, the penny has finally dropped. And there's a sense in which Israel have now come to their senses. 
They're at their place now. They should have been at the end of chapter 1. Well, let's look again at verses 1 and 2. And notice that they themselves offer three good reasons for accepting David as king. And in these three reasons, the whole concept of kingship in the Bible reaches a new level. Firstly, look at verse 1 again and notice that they use this expression, we are your own flesh and blood. Literally, or in the ASV, behold, we are your bone and flesh. It's the very same phrase that Adam used when he first saw Eve presented to him back in Genesis 2, 23. It's a, a vivid way, an intimate way of acknowledging a family relationship with David. Not only is this in keeping with what Moses said back in Deuteronomy 17, when he said they must pick a king from their own brethren, not only does this now unite the tribes together as one family, descendants of Abraham, but this expression tells us something profoundly important about the nature of kingship in the Bible. Look again with me at verse 1. I wonder where you think the emphasis should be put. I think it should be put like this. We are your own flesh and blood. That is, they're putting the emphasis on who they are in relationship to David. They're not just a gang of brothers of equal status. They are his bone and flesh. In other words, they are his body. He is their head. It's actually a statement of profound submission and trust. The second reason they now recognize David as king is that they realize that in verse 2, it is he who has led Israel on their military campaigns. And you may remember back in 1 Samuel 8, that is the very reason they asked for a king in the first place. And so they're acknowledging something that the reader has known since that time. The young shepherd boy stepped out and slew, or is it slayed, Goliath with a stone. That David was the one God had given them to defeat their enemies. So not only is he their head, but he is also their saviour. The third reason they offer in verse 2 is that this is what God promised. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. The way they put it in verse 2 is especially significant because it reminds us of where David has come from on this long journey. You may just remember if you were here, the very first glimpse of David and the first mention of David in 1 Samuel is that he was tending his father's sheep. He was a shepherd from the beginning. But this also points us forward. Because the metaphor of the shepherd is going to be the biggest benchmark for all of Israel's future kings. This is how all the kings that come after, and there are many, will be measured. See, to be a warrior king, a saviour king, is one thing. But to be a shepherd king is to be someone who leads and rules, not for your own benefit, but for the sake of the sheep. Something that we get reminded of again in verse 12. Well, this new relationship is formalized with a covenant, verse 3. And in verses 4 and 5, we get the first of what will become a kind of a standard historical summary statement of the reign of the kings of Israel. But here's our first chance to have a look back and a look ahead. Firstly, have a look back. What has God done so far in the story? 
Well, he has graciously, graciously given Israel far more than they asked for. Remember what they asked for in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Somebody to fight their battles, to make them just like the other nations. But look at what God has given them. He's given them someone to fight their battles. But he's given them a shepherd king who rules not for his sake, but for theirs. He's given them one from their own family. One who will treat them as a head cares for his own body. What an amazing, gracious gift. This is not like the other nations. This is because of God's kindness and wisdom. You see, sometimes we're very negative, aren't we, about leadership. Because we see so many examples of poor leadership in the world, we think leadership itself is a, is a bad idea. But God doesn't think that. God thinks that having leadership, having kingship, having rule, is the way he's going to bless us. That was the reason, right back in Genesis, that to live in God's kingdom is to be in God's place, under his rule, which is his blessing. And so God, in his wisdom and kindness, doesn't want, to live his, doesn't want us to live in chaos and anarchy and the violence and foolishness of men. His whole purpose from the beginning was to give us a leader, to place over us a good shepherd, one who loves us like his own body, who fights our enemies, who rules and reigns not for his sake, but for the sake of the sheep. Well, that's the look back. But what about the view ahead? Well, the view ahead tells us that, as we'll see, we're not there yet, but it looks forward to the coming of Christ, the good shepherd who will defeat our enemies, not of the Philistines, but of sin and Satan and death, and he'll do it by laying down his life for the sheep, those he calls his body. So strands and themes that begin here are going to run like a thread through the rest of the Bible until we see them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And doesn't that make you thankful for Jesus? I don't know if you noticed Barack Obama's latest memoir. I think he got paid $65 million or something like that for it. Very expensive book, actually. I guess it has to be to pay off the advance, doesn't it? But the latest memoir of Barack Obama, Barack Obama is titled The Promised Land. It's a very intriguing title for a book of a former president of America, isn't it? And it expresses the hope that people often put in people and power and politics and princes, that this man or this man or this woman is going to lead us to the promised land. They're going to get things sorted. They're going to clear out the mess. But as we've seen already in this series, they always fail. And so who are you putting your hope in? This should make us long for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who will lead us to the promised land. But at the same time, sometimes we might despair. And this is a reminder not to despair at this world. Because there is, in fact, a good king. There is a good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. And so where is your confidence is the question. Where is your hope? Well, let's turn to our next section. And Andy's going to read from 6 to 16, from wandering exiles to the center of the universe.
the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishur, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, Eliaphet. Thanks, Andy. From wandering exiles to the centre of the universe. This is a tricky passage. It's got some confusing details. <clears throat> the language and geography are not straightforward. But it's important to see that this is a pivotal moment in the Bible's history. In fact, what we see here is a pivotal moment for the history of the world and the future of the universe. What is so significant about this place, Jerusalem? Well, at the moment in the Bible story, it's not a great deal. It's only been mentioned a couple of times, and none of those are particularly significant. But this is where it begins. Let's have a brief look back, first of all. The significance of this action of David in terms of the story so far lies in the detail of who lives in this place. Verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who live there. What's so significant about that? Well, this is where we have to have a look back. Have a look back with me. I've already mentioned God's promise to Abraham. Have a look back to Genesis 15, and the words will appear on the screen. And just notice, who is last on the list of the people to be driven out of the land? It's a solemn moment when the sun had set and darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pit and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. With that in mind, can you now see the significance of 2 Samuel 5, verse 6? All of those other peoples had been driven out of the land. Here, in the capture of Jerusalem, 
is the last vestige of Canaanite resistance, the final stage of the conquest that Joshua began all those years ago. And so here is a moment of fulfillment. God had promised to give this land to Abraham's descendants. And here is David driving out the last, the Jebusites. There's another detail we need to look at, which is the manner that David captures Jerusalem. And this demonstrates God's strength in a way that is in keeping with Hannah's song. Remember, not by strength that one prevails, but the Lord will establish his king. This brings us to one of the difficulties of this passage, and it's considered to be one of the hardest bits of 2 Samuel. And that's what to make of this business of the blind and lame in verse 6 and 8. Look at verse 6 again. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in there. The blind and lame are the weakest of society. So what the Jebusites are doing are really taunting and defying David with their bravado. We've got to imagine Jerusalem is up on this hill. It's higher than David and they're confident. They're saying we're so confident that you cannot conquer us. That even if all we did was defend ourselves with a handful of blind and lame, the weakest of society, we've got nothing to fear. So it's a moment of bravado and super confidence. Where did their confidence come from? Well, for one thing, it seems that David has not yet gathered this massive army of Israel that we'll see at the beginning of the next chapter. He's still fighting with his band of brothers that we've seen in 1 Samuel. But the most important reason for their confidence is because of Jerusalem itself and this fortress of Zion, something that we're going to see over and over again in the Bible. It's a place that has the appearance of being impregnable, invincible. And this security of Zion and Jerusalem will become a big theme in the Bible. It will actually in time lead to a false security which the prophets and then Jesus himself will challenge. But now this explains the confidence of the Jebusites as they see David and his little crew marching against them. They're super confident. They are barricaded up in this impregnable city high up on the hillside there's no way David can possibly overcome this city but that confident defiance is yet another opportunity for David to exercise his trust in God and his belief in Hannah's song it is not by strength that one prevails and so if you look at verse 7 the narrator simply cuts the chase and tells us nevertheless Despite the massive confidence of the Jebusites, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, and then he called it the city of David. Well, how did he do it? Well, this is where verse 8 comes in. The narrator now gives us a little backward glance and explains how he did it. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach the lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the lame and blind will not enter the palace. The second mention of blind and lame occurs in the context of David's strategy to get into the city. It seems that there was one weakness to this impregnable city, which was a water culvert or a kind of a shaft, part of a water system of springs that brought water into the city from the springs outside, very useful for a time of siege. 
I wonder if this is where Tolkien got his idea from for Helm's Deep in the Two Towers, if you know it. The one weakness was the little kind of well in the middle. And for centuries, interesting fact, just as an aside, for centuries, historians didn't believe that this shaft existed. No one knew what it referred to. But in 1867, a water shaft was discovered that fits the bill exactly. And so it seems to be that climbing up this vertical shaft, David's men were able to make a surprise attack into the complacent city and storm the stronghold. And so once again, God's strength is seen over a seemingly invincible human power. Well, that's the look back. What about the look forwards? The significance of this city on a hill all lies in the future from here. And it will build and accumulate through the rest of the Bible, right up into the very last chapter of the Bible, where we see a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And therefore, although it might seem like a throwaway line, verse 7 is a monumentally significant moment in the story of the Bible and the story of the world. Here is the first time the word Zion is mentioned. And as we move forward through the Bible, Zion is going to take on massive significance. It's going to be much bigger than a physical place in the Middle East. Just as the kingdom of God was an idea more than a reality when he made the promise to Abraham, so Zion becomes a theological idea that explodes beyond the realms of David's reign and takes us right to the heart of God's purpose. It actually is a symbol of what God is going to do with his universe. A royal city where God is going to dwell face to face with his people. But what kind of place will Zion be and who can enter the city? So as soon as we say royal city, it sounds kind of exclusive, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever been on a flight on an airplane and everybody turns right to, to their seat, but there's a few people who turn left to the first class compartment. Is that what the city of Zion is going to be like? Kind of exclusive, selective, so that only a few, only the best can enter it. Well, the key is to go back to those blind and lame. You'll notice it's mentioned three times, so it must be significant. The reference to blind and lame in verse 8 is not, of course, an indication of David's attitude to disabled people. But what he is doing is simply throwing back the Jebusites' taunt at him. And then at the end of verse 8, a tradition arises to help people remember this. Those blind and lame, that is, the Jebusites, are, are not going to be allowed in the palace of David. Seems to be what it means. Well, it does set up a note of exclusion, doesn't it? But it also anticipates a stunning reversal. At this point, the blind and lame, whoever they are, whether they're a kind of expression for Jebusites or something else, they're excluded. But as the Bible story makes its way from here on in, the blind and lame are the very people who are invited. We're going to see it in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. As David, who has just said the blind and lame are excluded from his house, is going to welcome Mephibosheth, who's lame in both feet, around his table. And then as the Bible moves on from there, we're going to see that this city of David, the Jerusalem, is a place where God's enemies are welcomed as they turn back and are forgiven. And the blind and lame are restored. 
Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And what is Jesus' first word of pub in public word in Luke's gospel? It is to open the scroll of Isaiah and announce the gospel of salvation to the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the blind, and the lame, Luke 4. And when Jesus enters Zion and the temple and drives out the money changers from the temple in Jerusalem, Matthew 21. Matthew tells us that who are the people who came in to him at that point? The blind and the lame, and he healed them. And so the look ahead tells us that God's purposes involves a city, a city at the center of the universe. But it's not a city of exclusion, it's a city where the blind and the lame are welcomed and restored. It's a city of glory and of joy. And so I want to ask you, is this your hope this morning? Do you look around the world and despair that this city will ever come? Well, look back and see how far God has got and look ahead to the mountain peak. Don't stop here. Don't be like tired children halfway up the mountain, wanting to stop and settle. Keep going, because the future is much better. We'll come back to 11 to 16, but now I'm just going to read our final section, From Cowering in Caves to Conquering the World. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Thanks, Andy. From cowering in caves to conquering the world, our final section. The story of David's rise to the throne has been one of conflict and opposition from the beginning, hasn't it? This conflict has really come from two sources. One, Saul, and two, the Philistines. But now, the Philistines are driven out, finally. And in the time remaining, I want to simply notice two aspects of this conflict. The first is that it's a response to David's king, kingship 
The second is that it involves a great reversal, response and reversal. And then we'll take one final look back and look ahead. Look at the response, first of all. You might have thought that David kicking out the Jebusites, storming the stronghold of Zion, and uniting the whole of Israel under him, a nation estimated to be around 2 million people at this stage, would make the Philistines think twice <clears throat> and maybe even back off in fear and trembling. After all, <clears throat> this is the man who slew, or is it slayed, Goliath, their champion, when he was just a boy. Imagine what he could do with an entire army under him. With 10 years of military experience, a proven track record, and having God on his side. But strangely, counterintuitively, irrationally, they do the opposite. Now look at verse 17 and notice that the narrator makes it clear that the Philistine attack is a direct response to the news of David being made king. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force in search for him. As David himself would come to write in Psalm 2, why did the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Why do the Philistines attack? It is because David is God's king. That is their response to this gospel in verse 17. The second thing we must notice is that the rest of the chapter involves a massive God-given reversal. It is really David and Goliath on a bigger scale. So notice that the action unfolds in a series of alternating scenes, what the Philistines do, what David does, what they do, what he does, until we come to verse 25 and read at last after years of warfare and conflict that David has finally driven out the Philistines and they're barely mentioned again in the Bible. There's lots of details here, but just notice that David is the model king. He seeks God, he trusts God, he obeys God, but it's God who does it. It's God who breaks out, verse 20, against the enemies. It's God, verse 21, who symbolically defeats their gods. It's God who miraculously goes out in front of them, verse 24. That sound of the wind and the balsam trees, this is God's miraculous conquest of the Philistines. And so this is David and Goliath on a bigger scale because God promised all along that it will be him, 1 Samuel 2, who breaks the bows of the warriors. It'll be God who exalts his king. And so as we take one final look back, see where we've come. A tremendous achievement. A turning point in the history of the kingdom of God. God's enemies are defeated. A time of peace is coming. God's people living in his place, under his rule, which is to live under his blessing. And just a little detail, the writer of the Chronicles, which is a kind of a parallel uh, history to this, writes in 1 Chronicles 14, 17, so David's fame spread throughout every land and the Lord made all the nations fear him. So, final look back before we look ahead. The presence of enemies on Israel's soil is now at an end. Here is the kingdom of God in physical form. The thing that we've been looking forward to right from the beginning, the thing that was promised to Abraham, we now see taking 
concrete shape. Here is God's warrior shepherd king saving God's people so the blessing of God can finally come. God's people living in his land under his king. But we need to not stop there, don't we? This is just a resting place. And so as we end, we need to look ahead and we're going to see two things, failure and fulfillment. Notice the failure first comes in that uh, uh, part of the passage we, I didn't talk about before. King Heron, Hiram's generous gift of cedar logs and craftsmen in verse 11 to build David a house. This underlines David new, David's newfound greatness and the journey that he's come on from begging for bread back in 1 Samuel 21 to being sent gifts from foreign kings. But there's a note of a shadow there as well because alliances with foreigners and their gifts are a danger signal that will come to haunt Israel in Solomon's day. The other stronger hint of a shadow comes in verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. We've already seen David's polygamous marriages, but here is the first time concubine has been used with reference to David. And while the narrator passes no comment, there is a hint that all is not well. You see, ancient Near Eastern kings had a kind of list of must-haves, didn't they? The equivalent of the Bentley parked in the garage with a private number plate. A palace was one. A harem of women was the other. It was just one of the things that you did. And so David here is actually becoming like the nations. And it reminds us of 1 Samuel 8, the warning that Samuel gave to the people that the king would take the best things for himself. David is the good shepherd. He's the king that people need. But here we're seeing a hint that he's not going to reach the standard, that he's going to take for himself, and that these decisions, these choices, will end up David serving himself rather than the people that he's here to lead. And that just reminds us, doesn't it, to look ahead. Well, what do we see when we look ahead from this point? Let me very briefly summarize the rest of the Bible story. We see deep-rooted sin in the heart of the king. We see idolatry in the heart of his son. A little later, the kingdom will split back into north and south. Two and a half centuries later, the northern kingdom will come to nothing. The southern kings come and go, good, bad, mediocre, many of them slaughtering their children in the, uh, in the process, uh, the, the children of their predecessors. After a while, idolatry sets in, rots the core of the nation. After a little while longer, the leaders of the north are taken off to Assyria into exile. Another century goes by, and David's legacy is crumbling. The Babylonians come and take the leaders of the people into exile. In due course, God brings a few of them back. They rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, but it's nothing like the original. And after a while, there is no king. They are vassals of the Persian state, the latest superpower. That state gives way to the Greeks, which gives way to the Romans, and Israel becomes nothing but a puppet state ruled by kings like the Herods. And that is where the New Testament opens. As B.C. swings to A.D., the New Testament opens with these words, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And what does Jesus do? 
he announces the coming of the kingdom. He teaches his disciples to pray for that kingdom to come. He dies and rises to defeat our enemies and bring us into the kingdom. The good shepherd laying down his life so that the blind and the lame can come into his house. He promises to return. He leaves us with a gospel to take to the nations. And so now from this point, not to Samuel 5, but this point here, on the 21st of November, or is it the 22nd, uh, we look ahead, what do we see? Well, listen to these words from Revelation 21. John, looking ahead, cast a vision which is in terms of the story so far. And then he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Now they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Two challenges from this morning. Make sure you're not settling in this world as if you've arrived, but keep looking ahead to what is to come. But don't despair that you'll never get there. Look how far you've come. Look how far God has brought his world. This is our vision for the future. This is our hope if we believe the promises of God. Let's pray now that we will. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of the kingdom that we read in the Bible. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come as our good shepherd. He has laid down his life for the sheep to welcome us into this new Jerusalem that is coming in the future. Thank you that this kingdom is something we can live for, something we can trust in, Thank you that it will outdo disease, war, famine, disaster. Thank you that into this kingdom the blind and lame are welcome. Thank you that this kingdom is far better than we can imagine. And if we trust in Jesus, this is our future. Please forgive us for when we settle in this world. And please help us to keep looking ahead and pray your kingdom come. Amen.